Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen... Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich... Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We're very excited to bring you the first installment of our long-promised series on German foreign policy. This uh, actually turned out to be a very timely episode because of the ongoing tensions in Ukraine, as I'm sure everyone is aware. And Ted spoke with Berlin-based journalist James Jackson to discuss Germany's approach to the crisis which has been in the spotlight lately. Yeah, it sure has. Um, you know, we we thought up this series quite a while ago and it just turned out to be, like Michelle said, pretty timely um, with, um, you know, normally most people don't care about German foreign policy that much. But uh, lately everyone's been asking, what are they up to uh, over <laughs> this? What are, what are those crazy Germans doing? And so we, we get into all that. We get into the, the details of the Ukraine crisis as well in the interview. So we're not gonna belabor that for now. But yeah, obviously, you know, there have been Russian troops have been massing in Western Russia near their border with Ukraine and countries like the US, UK um, and some other NATO countries have really like sounded the alarm bells, even as Ukraine has tried to downplay it a bit. Um, the you know, US and co have been warning of imminent invasion. Someone said like Kiev was going to get sacked, which sounds very like medieval or something <laughs> Yikes. It's like riding horses through the streets and like taking the gold. Uh, and pledged, you know, they've also pledged like massive consequences for Russia if there were to be an invasion while shipping a lot of weapons to Ukraine in order to kind of act as a deterrent or sort of bolster their defenses against Russia, who you know, are as a whole pretty overmatched by Russia on paper. Right. And then you have Germany, despite also being a NATO country, with the exception of kind of the odd helmet shipment not following suit with its allies, which we want to get into today. Yeah. And the like the head of the German Navy, he got canceled. Like literally, like he's no longer the head of the German Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't we just speak in no, normal terms? He no, he got canceled. Yeah. Because uh, he said he said Ukraine was not ever going to get Crimea back from Russia, which is like kind of seems like something that's objectively true um but you're just like not allowed to say that and you have to just be like no we are gonna like we are gonna change these like facts that like no one actually is setting out to change and so yeah he got canned um there's just yeah there's been a lot of there's been a lot of pushback to what is seen as germany's tepid response Oof. but in terms of how other countries have responded to germany's actions many have argued that they're insufficient And this is a bit of a funny one for us because we tend to make fun of the American and British press for being too pro-Germany. <laughs> and in this episode, we actually generally defend Germany from the Englisphere press. So in order to do that, let's uh, take the temperature of the takes. Take temperature. Yeah, the, <laughs> I mean, you know... The IQ of the people doing the takes is is lukewarm as usual, but uh, but there are some some of the takes themselves are are a little bit spicy. Uh, everyone's getting mad at the Germans, like we said. You said we never see this. They're always saying 
this is the grown-up country this is the organized country why can't we be like them and this time they're like except for except for fighting war they're like germans you need to fight more wars and so they're they're mad because the germans won't send weapons they might not cancel the Nord stream 2 pipeline which goes from russia to germany bypassing ukraine They've said that they would do sanctions if there's an invasion, but I guess they haven't like said it loud enough or threatened um, dramatic enough sanctions. Like their uh, heart's not in it. Yeah, you know? they're just they're just they're, they're not leaving it all on the Donbass, and like you just gotta <laughs> you just gotta get out there, have fun with it. They're also they're even blocking some DDR art- era artillery from coming from Estonia to Ukraine because it was like made in Germany, so they're saying you can't send it to Ukraine. Um, and yeah, the Anglophone media is is very mad about it. So we should dive into a few of our favorite outlets. Why don't we start with that other paper in New York City, that other little one? What's it called? The Wall Street Journal. Yeah, okay, here's an opinion piece. Tom Rogan the other week, showing his linguistic skills because the piece is titled, Is Germany a Reliable American Ally? Nine. <laughs> Berlin goes its own way, prizing cheap gas, car exports to China, and keeping Putin calm. And there's a bunch of these. We're not going to read all of them. It's just basically a laundry list of all this stuff about how, you know, Germany isn't just, yeah, doesn't, they don't play hard enough. They don't, they don't leave it all out there. And so they're not confrontational with China. They're importing the gas. They're doing all the bad things. Um, We'll read a few of the funnier ones on our follow-up bonus episode about this topic, where we're going to have an extended part of the interview with James, as well as a couple readings of some of the funnier ones of this. We'll link to this as well. Um, but the the painting or like the, the art that goes along with this is really hilarious because they have a big, scary looking Russian bear uh, with a sword and with a shield. But on his shield is the emblem of the Federal Republic of Germany, the little the sickly eagle that they have on all their government buildings. And so, yeah, the, the, the terrifying, horrible bear is using Germany as its shield. So it really makes you think there. So. But, but the bear is also like the Berlin bear. So it's kind of confusing. Yeah, but no one knows that. No it's the Russian that. bear. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Is, this, I, is, I always think of the, the Berlin, Berlin bear. bear is friend, the Berlin bear is friendly. Yeah. Okay. So this, no, this is angry the, bear, this Russia. Is the, this is the Russian bear. Nice yeah. bear. That nobody knows about, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Congrats to David Gothard on the uh, the thought-provoking <laughs> illustration there. It's nice when there's a little ambiguity in yeah, those yeah. Uh, political cartoons. <laughs> yeah. Michelle, do you have, oh. any, have you found any any good takes? Any good uh, Germany takes? Oh yes, I I have. In in fact, let's head over to the Washington Post uh, global opinion section. Little Acela ride down to our other friends. <laughs> where we have an opinion piece by Katja Hoyer titled Germany has become a weak link in NATO's line of defense. And kind of the- like they're all playing Red Rover or something. And they like <laughs> linking arms in Germany. Like it's just not like, like how do these people think geopolitics works? Like you all like, like it's like a, a phalanx of like Greek soldiers and they have to like keep it all really close together. Like it's just, yeah. they use these analogies that are so stupid. Yeah. But the kind of concluding argument here is uh, with Germany hesitant and the United States seemingly resigned to compromise if the scale of the Russian invasion allows it, Moscow might well think it's worth the gamble. If it does, the escalation in Eastern Europe will be not in small part due to Berlin's urge to look east rather than west. Germany has become a weak link in NATO's line of defense. So saying that 
it's actually it would be Germany's fault for staying out of it if, if there's this a war. If there's yeah. <laughs> okay, so by not doing enough war, they're actually doing war. We'll we'll flag a couple of these things because I like doing that. I think it's important in this kind of writing because you see these same like banalities and kind of rhetorical tricks come back over and over. And this is a really classic one that the more kind of militarists or like hawkish people will always use is that like, oh, you're a pacifist and you don't want war. Well, that means you're the real militarist because you're not doing enough deterrence. So like if you don't want war, that means you actually brought war upon yourself. And she's basically doing that here or saying, hypothetically, if there is war, it'll be the more pacifist country's fault, whereas the ones that are inflaming tensions, not negotiating in good faith and constantly sending more weapons like the U.S., they're yeah. actually the peace lovers. By staying out of it, it's, your, it's just so it's just so wild. She's, she's basically your silence is speaking volumes yeah. in Germany. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we've got, uh, actually, we've got a double, a double up of, of Katya. Uh, she also wrote for the Daily Telegraph, Germany's pacifist rot undermines NATO itself. Um, so yeah, a little, a little bit spicier on the language there on the other side of the pond. Again, same, you know, same basic facts, uh, getting mad at Germany for sending helmets instead of weapons. I also saw Germany criticized elsewhere. Someone was like, oh, well, they're going to, I think it was like the Lithuanian or Latvian defense minister was like, oh, yeah, the Germans, watch them just build a field hospital instead of send weapons. And it's like, well, what? if there's a war, like, you do need a, ho I mean, like, that's actually good. Like, like that seems like a nice thing. Like, I don't know if I were fighting a war and some other country was going to, like, take care of my wounded people, I'd be like, thanks, That that's a, that, that's a solid. Appreciate it. But apparently only weapons count. Anyway, so helmets, also bad. So everyone's getting mad at that. On and on and on. Um, yeah, the mayor of Kiev said 5,000 helmets are a complete joke. What are they going to send next? Pillows? Uh, <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. I mean, the boys, it's cold out there. The boys need comfy pillows. Like, have you seen those photos of out in, the, out in eastern Ukraine? Like, I would want a good night's sleep before facing the Russian army, personally. Oh, God. Okay. So. <laughs> I mean, amphetamines only got the Russians to the gates of Moscow. Like, what if they had comfier pillows? History could be different. Yeah. If they had just had a, a better night's sleep, uh, things could have turned yeah. out really differently. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I said, she goes through, you know, the pipeline's bad. Germany is too tied to this, like, pacifist tradition, which people go on and on about, like, the people that want Germany to be kind of a more, like, normal Western country. Will always say stuff like, you know, uh, basically that it overlearned the lessons of World War II and that like they, you know, from that they were like, oh, we should like never invade countries or like, you know, just give military aid, whatever, which like isn't even true. Like they have intervened in various settings, notably Afghanistan. But it's this idea that like, why does Germany need to be so hung up on the past? And it's like, well, I don't know, maybe there is something to be said. For, for trying to learn from from causing a, a world war that like maybe you should try to do everything in your power not to do that in the future. But the more centrist and like hawkish people, they hate that. They just want Germany to like act like the UK or the US and like get over this historical hangover. Because she says, you know, um, citing some of like the, the pipeline and say, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Germany just wants to export cars and import gas. Like they don't actually stand for anything. And she says monetary interests alone are not enough to explain Germany's reluctance to use its political weight when necessary. They say 
People don't understand how deeply ingrained Germany's aversion to military conflict is in the collective national psyche. That's always how you know you're getting good analysis when you hear a phrase like collective national psyche, that, that thing that definitely exists. And so she actually luckily does cite some polling data, which is a bit more useful. She says a YouGov survey released yesterday, so about a week ago, showed that one in five Germans would support sending arms to Ukraine. And so this actually goes across the political spectrum. She says, while pacifist attitudes are slightly stronger among the voters of left-leaning parties, it runs through all of them, with more than half of the voters of every single major party opposing military support for Ukraine. As a result, there's no thorough parliamentary scrutiny of the government's ambling security policy. I mean, basically just asking for there to be some sort of check by a deep state yeah. to override... Yeah, it's pretty wild what she's saying here because it's, it sounds like, okay, yeah, like the, the government is not sending weapons. Sending weapons is deeply unpopular. Only 20% of the population supports doing that. And so the government is actually acting in broadly in line with what the, the German population would want. And so normally the criticism you hear of foreign policy is that it's too anti-democratic, right? Uh, there's this sort of group of experts making decisions and there's not a lot of democratic oversight. And here, instead of arguing, which, you know, the opinion I agree with usually is that we need more democratic oversight of foreign policy. She's saying we need more deep state oversight of democracy. And it's like, what are you talking about? If, if this is what the people want and you're allegedly like in your whole thing, your whole premise is you're defending democracy and your own democracy at home says we don't want to defend this other country in that way. Like, shouldn't you respect that? Like, what? why do you just get to override your population? And so then she goes in and, you know, the, the never again spirit has, you know, has like left these negative marks on, on, on Germany. And then they're, they're not taking the bold moves that, that we need to because and no, one, no one can trust Germany or emboldening Putin um, when they're really just mostly trying to take a more diplomatic approach. So, yeah, we, uh, we love to see that. That's, that's sort of trope number two. Like the first one, right, is the, the pacifists are the real aggressors and Number two is that the people are idiots. Like we should, we should, yeah, dissolve the populace and elect another, right? Because like they don't, they don't understand the details and the nuance of foreign policy. We need the experts. And so if there's like foreign policy, people always do this. They'll find one poll that supports their opinions and then cite it endlessly. And then the like 90% that don't support their opinions, they'll say, wow, this shows how like horribly misguided our population is. We really need to like educate them and act in their best interest on their behalf. So this is, uh, this is that second one and, and very bleak because just saying basically uh, this, is, this is above democracy. What we do, like war and peace is not something that should be a matter of political debate. So that that rounds out the opinion sections of uh, of the large large papers in our uh, what are we London New York DC the big all the spots all the all the NATO hotspots so we covered we covered what the pulse is in the opinion sections of these uh, these brilliant outlets um, and something we don't talk enough or a lot about on this show at all is the sort of think tank world and I'll just read real quickly um, we'll get to the interview in just a minute but. It's it's worth also bringing up what sort of the like so-called like expert or like foreign policy class thinks about this. I found this one useful. It's from Carnegie Europe, and it's a, a piece that says, is Germany damaging Europe's position on Ukraine? 
it's funny because it's phrased as a question here. There's also an opinion piece by the same person that compiled the answers to this that just says why Germany is undermining NATO unity on Russia. So um, she clearly has her mind made up, but but she asks like these think tankers in a bunch of different places. And we'll read some of the better ones on the, the bonus, as I said, but it's worth just bringing up um, a few of these of what I think is like sort of trope number three to keep an eye out when you read this is these like, these like bad analogies for like what NATO or for what the West is like this idea that there could be a Trojan horse or a chink in the armor or a weak link. Um, and so they just basically get like think tankers from like every big foreign policy think tank in, in various European countries. And they're always just like, you know, is it damaging uh, Germany? Is Germany damaging NATO? And they just say yes. And it's like by like this one country not showing their resolve, we're we're all going to crumble. Like it's sort of like a like a domino theory of the alliance that like if they're not all like on the ground sending as many weapons as possible, that the whole thing doesn't work. And it's just it's just very like weak analysis or like it relies on the use of a lot of analogy and not a lot of actual analysis of like, well, well, what is Germany doing? Like, could Germany actually send enough weapons that it would change anything? Like, what are their respective strengths? Like, we're not NATO fans on this podcast, but like, if you're in an alliance, like you'd think about like what each country can kind of do most effectively. And like, maybe Germany, like, like the Bundeswehr is not necessarily Germany's like biggest strength to throw around. So like, there's other things and just getting mad at them for setting up a hospital or giving helmets when like maybe they can do other more helpful things isn't like a very devastating criticism. And this framing that, oh, if you're not like maximizing like the purely the military part of the aid, then you're undermining the whole thing. And like all of NATO and Europe is all going to collapse. Like it just, it it's very like, shaky. Yeah. And Germany like does contribute a lot. They have all the U.S. bases and like all. Right. Yeah. Have, allow the US to like do drone strikes from Ramstein yeah. Air Base. I mean like this idea they're not like doing the bank robbing. They're like, yeah man, you can borrow my car to like rob a bank with. It's like it's like Germany's thing. And it's like, well, you're still like, you know, you'd still be tried for that. It doesn't seem like such a weak link to me. I mean, they've got nukes here, they've got the drones here, like a ton of American troops are here. Like they're very much a, like a part of the US led like NATO military apparatus. They're just like not necessarily using as many of their own guys to do it but like giving up your land to like act as a base for a foreign power is still like extremely helpful and so like this idea that like they constantly it's like send more anti-tank missiles send this it's like it's not even that like helpful it's just like they want they just like want everybody there like holding hands and saying like yeah we're strong we're like we're gonna stand up to putin and it's just it's very boring yeah but we'll get into all this on the debate um not the debate <laughs> we'll get into we'll get into all this on the interview with James, uh, who's super knowledgeable and yeah, did did a great job of discussing all of this. Yeah, no, I'm really I was really excited about this interview because I felt like it provided a lot of context that I was missing, kind of going back even to the Cold War and how that like shapes a lot of Germany's positions. So I thought this was a really great discussion. Yeah, James is a super smart guy and, and knows a ton about this stuff. So yeah, we'll have uh, this one on the free episode and then a longer extended version behind the paywall on Patreon. So if you haven't already, we'd very much appreciate your support over there. We've got a, a growing catalog of premium episodes now. And so yeah, thanks so much to everyone that, that already does support. And 
if you don't mind, if you've got five bucks a month, go on over there. You can listen to our history of German businesses during the Nazi era. Oh, we have the uh, the changes to German universities in the East after the wall came down. There's a bunch of fun ones there. So yeah, check it out. And yeah, thanks so much to everybody for listening. Yeah, thank you everyone so much for your support. We really appreciate it. On to the interview. Hey everyone, and welcome to Spaßbremse. I'm joined by a very special guest here, uh, James Jackson, a journalist based in Berlin. James, how you doing? Thanks for coming on. I mean, yeah, not bad. It's pretty, it's pretty rainy outside. I haven't left the house in a while, but uh, other than that, things are good. Par for the course, Berlin winter stuff, yeah. Exactly. Gray is our color. Yeah, so James is actually, like I said, a very, very special guest because he's the first person to guess the origin of our podcast logo, uh, which is a riff off of the Morgenthau plan, the plan that wanted to divide up Germany into three agrarian states so it could never wage war again. And that actually is a bit relevant to what we're talking about today, because this is the first installment of our foreign policy series. And obviously raising the questions of when and under what circumstances should Germany wage war or at least uh, contribute to wars that might exist. And we've been planning this series for a while. I'm sure like longtime listeners have heard us kind of tease this a few times. We didn't exactly know how news relevant it was going to be at the time we were starting it. Um, And James has an article out with Jacobin on this subject. And I think it's uh, he'd be a great source to talk to and sort of guide us through Germany's role in the Ukraine conflict has not enough of a role for according to some people. And so we'll run all through that and as well as give some background to how Germany got this way, how we can kind of explain its uh, its behavior. So, James, could you just give us like a general overview of what's going on in this Ukraine situation in case um, in case anyone hasn't really been keeping up on that real closely? Um, well, yeah, I, there's, there's been a lot in the news about this recently. I think there's obviously a Russian troop buildup on their side of the Ukrainian border. So they have over 100,000 troops. They've kind of moved in various places. There's some speculation that the Russians might be able to invade either and annex either like a bit around the kind of Donbass conflict region or some people are even saying they're going to take over Kharkiv, which I believe is the second city. And then the US president, Joe Biden's people actually briefed that they were going to sack Kiev. So there's a lot of speculation going on. And it's kind of being made out as a NATO conflict, which to an extent it is. But I think a lot of people are also forgetting that Ukraine is actually not a NATO member. So people say it's a NATO ally. But I mean, surely you have to be a member of the alliance to be an ally in a way. So Ukraine wants to join NATO. Russia is using this as a kind of pretext for the military buildup and claiming it feels encircled. And Germany has been under a lot of flack from other allies. I think in some cases you could say it's been a little bit exaggerated because, for example, France has actually been very similar in not wanting to send weapons to Ukraine. But Germany, I guess, also because of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is pretty much ready. I think it's the manufacturing is ready. It just needs like a thumbs up from the regulator. And that's been delayed for political reasons. 
This is quite an interesting moment for kind of looking at the different tensions within Germany, within German foreign policy in particular, because Germany has very unique foreign policy because of its history, because of the fact that it was occupied by two different sides, also because of the fact that there is a, to an extent, a pacifist tradition within German foreign policy. A lot of people grew up being told, you know, we were the bad guys in the war, we shouldn't, war is also bad. So a lot of Germans have a, a bit more of a kind of pacifistic reflex than you would get in, say, the UK, US, France too, as well, I would I would imagine. There's not the historical legacy of always being the good guys, right? You're sort of, you're sort of taught, I know at least in the US, that like, if we're in a war, we must be the good guys. And Germans have been very disabused of that notion for obvious historical Absolutely, reasons. absolutely. And it's like, it's a, it would be a real taboo in Germany to say, nowadays to say like we were the we weren't the bad guys you know it's kind of become a societally accepted view it wasn't always like that it wasn't like that for a long time after the war there was a, a long tradition of kind of versorgung or reconciliation with the nazis denazification was like the extent of denazification has been exaggerated but you can say at least from the um 68 movement onwards which was like a left-wing student movement dealt with dealt with reconciling with the past and you can say that since then, there's been like a wide acceptance that Germany was the bad guy and, you know, that should have an effect on how we build our society today. Foreign policy is an important one um, on this and in particular on this question, because one of the main places the Nazis killed people was, of course, the Soviet Union. And in Germany, in kind of modern German discourse, that means Russia. So some people, a lot of uh, people, including Steinmeier, the president, I think he said recently, like, we owe Russia Nord Stream. We owe this kind of cooperation because of our historical responsibility to due to the Nazis. Now, I think a lot of people have come back and criticized him for that and said, well, there were a lot of concentration camps in Ukraine, in Poland. You know, a lot, a lot of Polish people were killed, but poten potentially more Ukrainians and Poles and Belarusians than actually Russians. Um, I haven't seen any figures for that, but it's it's kind of comes down to how it's conceptualized in Germany. And of course, it's actually surprising how little Russophobia there is in Germany, considering like a third of the country was occupied by the Russians. Well, they even have a term, an, an opposite term that I've heard is Russlandverständnis, like uh, Verstehe, like yeah. Putin Verstehe, yeah, Russland, Russland Verstehe. Russland Verstehe, yeah, yeah. Like, like they're like they're sort of especially good at, um, at 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 understanding and dealing with Russia, and then don't and so explicitly saying we don't have the Russophobia of maybe some other Western European countries. Yeah, and I think that is also quite interesting because at least at the end of uh, when the DDR was collapsing and the Soviet Union was collapsing, there were at least some powerful people who said this is finally the end of like the Russian occupation of Germany, which you know it was. That's one way to think about it, at least. So they have this tradition of Russlandverstehe. And one thing I've, I've picked up from P speaking to certain analysts is that whereas in the, in the Anglosphere, we might understand like the collapse of the Soviet Union as being about the fall of communism and how it was just a system that didn't work. A lot of people, particularly in the SPD, would be thinking that, you know, that was partly down to Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik. Yeah, so we'll. I want to get into that historical legacy and how some of that 
memory of this of these periods actually shape current policy, especially now having the the SPD in the chancellery again. And I think you know, obviously a a, a great background you gave, a good amount to unpack there. Like, so the idea now, right, is you you've sort of seen this thrown around quite a bit. It's like you have countries like the UK, Poland. Uh, the U.S. that are taking quite a hard line and are seen as the sort of more uh, hawkish on Russia countries, right? And so they're then throwing their weight most strongly behind Ukraine, which obviously there's this this sort of longstanding NATO expansion, which then, you know, Russia says we feel threatened by that, uh, by having, you know, countries that were formerly a part of our sort of sphere of influence or even actually part of the Soviet Union in NATO, like the Baltics. And so the idea that Ukraine might join NATO in what, you know, has been a kind of historic core of of the Russian nation, um, Putin kind of infamously said that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. And so the West, especially the more hawkish countries, would say, right, like, oh, well, countries have a right to join whatever alliance they want. NATO is a defensive alliance. What are you so afraid about? Russia would say, well, why is there a hostile military alliance advancing exactly to your borders? And the analogy that's used is, you know, what if what if Mexico joined a military alliance with Russia? Like, how would the U.S. feel about that? Or Cuba. I was going to say, well, we already have kind of a test case of that uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think uh, yeah, we, we probably know the answer the to that question. Understands that it has its own sphere of influence. I mean, yeah. the Monroe Doctrine was the whole idea of having a backyard policy towards Latin America. So it's quite easy to criticize the U.S. on this. Um, I think one thing that's different in this debate in Germany is that you would only really get figures from, let's say, the left understanding the Russian perspective in Anglosphere media. Whereas for whatever reason, for these historical reasons, and I would argue for kind of self-interested reasons as well, in Germany, it's quite across the spectrum where they would actually understand that Russians see themselves as having a sphere of influence or at least having a kind of pan-Slavic civilization, you know. Uh, and a lot of people put forward that argument, in particular, the parliamentary leader of the SPD, Rolf Mützner, he said this a few times. I mean, that being aware of it doesn't mean you have to agree with that argument, but at least it shows like a willingness to listen. And I think that's probably better for negotiations. And this is the role in which Germany actually wants to be. So a lot of people in Germany want Germany to have a kind of mediator role, that the extent to which they should be neutral is debated. But in the Minsk Accords in 2016, Germany played this mediator role with France between, it's called the Normandy format, with uh, France and Germany kind of mediating between Ukraine, Russia, and at that time, I think it was also the breakaway republics, which are effectively under Russian control. Um, uh, and so you can see, you can kind of see both perspectives here, right? Like NATO, Germany being a NATO member and other NATO countries sort of getting mad at them for not sending um, the, ter the term I've seen a lot is lethal aid now, uh, basically military shipments. Um, I've heard, I've seen it called a, a Trojan horse for Russia, Germany in the West. I've seen it called a chink in NATO's armor. And um, there's a lot written about, you know, how yet yeah, like Germany is, it just isn't standing up. They're not, they're not bold and principled. And I think the German retort to that is, well, yeah, you're asking us where we serving in a mediating role in the Normandy format 
how can you be a mediator if you're backing one side militarily against another? And so, you know, I, I think that's that's probably a valid debate. And sort of Germany has a, it became kind of notorious, right? Uh, the, the UK is flying these weapons shipments in constantly, and Germany sends helmets. And so it was like a bit, it was a bit symbolic of of the anger that other NATO countries have towards Germany. But to contextualize this, I'd love to go back in time a little bit to what you alluded to in this like Ostpolitik period, right? Because you have, you know, the obviously Germany divided one in one occupied by the U.S. and, and the other Western powers one occupied by the Soviet Union, and of course that turned into then West and East Germany, the Federal Republic, and the DDR. And you have a very conscious decision on the part of West Germany, uh, founded in. 1949 under Adenauer of Westbindung, right? So it was going to join NATO. It then reestablished a military and became really joined these core Western institutions. Obviously, Germany is like this this dividing line in the Cold War, and it's it's the first place that's going to get obliterated if a war breaks out between NATO in the West and the Warsaw Pact in the East. And so then you have Willy Brandt, the SPD chancellor in the early 70s, and this is sort of a period when when you're going to start having uh, detente uh, from Nixon in the U.S. as well, and sort of people getting a little sick of this arms race and this constant tensions. And so he adopts this policy of, of Ostpolitik, or, or East East policy, or East poli- um, politics. Could you tell a little bit about that, um, both actually what it did, what it meant, and then also how that is remembered today, which you alluded to before? Well... I'd say nowadays, Willy Brandt has like a very, he's, he's considered to have a very, very good legacy, partially because he was the first social democratic chancellor. So I think a lot of people expected Germany to have social democratic governments after the war quite a lot, but for a very long time, they didn't. I mean, Adenauer was in power for a long time, uh, maybe 13 years off the top of my head. And then uh, Erhard took over as well, who was famously an ex-Nazi. So Willy Brandt was like, he managed to get the youth vote as well as the working class vote. Uh, he was a former mayor of Berlin. He was a former, former resistance fighter. He uh, was not originally called Willy Brandt. Yeah, he was called Herbert Fram was his uh, birth name, but quite an interesting character. He was also a journalist during the Spanish Civil War before the Nazi time. So he's considered one of Germany's most historic leaders. If if not the most historic leader. And within the SPD in particular, his party, he's really, really revered, which makes sense because he took them to power um, at the time and for quite a while. He had a, a quite an interesting downfall as well. But um, so actually the SPD's office in Berlin is called Willy Brandt House. And technically the... Berlin-Brandenburg Airport is Willy Brandt Airport, but I'm not sure that's uh, something positive for his legacy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he'd feel about that today. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've, I feel like they've quietly retired the Willy Brandt Airport part. So as well as just being the first social democratic chancellor and implementing like a number of social reforms, he also stepped away from this kind of arms race. In Germany, it wasn't really an arms race. What happened was there was this thing called the Hallstein Doctrine. It was kind of a diplomatic arms race. So there was this thing called the Hallstein Doctrine, which 
basically meant that the Federal Republic of Germany would withdraw diplomatic contract contact from any country that established diplomatic relations with the GDR, with East Germany. So for, this was used uh, in the case of Yugoslavia, who accepted a GDR ambassador. Because the, the GDR now we think of as just like a country that existed, right? But it was like a very sort of controversial creation at the start of the Cold War, where it just was, wasn't internationally recognized at all, or except yeah. in the Eastern Bloc, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Yugoslavia then took a GDR ambassador and the West, West Germany withdrew recognition of Yugoslavia. So it's this kind of diplomatic arms race where you're recognizing, unrecognizing people. And uh, this, they, they did not want to accept that the GDR was there to exist for quite a while. But at a, at a certain point, relations kind of normalized. And people also realized there's money to be made, whether it's from imports, exports, cheap labor, one of my colleagues is actually an ex-DDR reporter, and a lot of the stuff he was reporting on towards the end was IKEA making stuff in East Germany. So towards the end in particular, like the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc, if you want to call it that, were not quite as economically isolated as people might imagine or as economically yeah, self-sufficient. Right, because you have in the early 70s, you have Eric Honecker taking over in East Germany and making a kind of deliberate effort to increase living standards and modernize the economy, which entailed then importing machinery from the West and having to import more and then helping out Western industry, becoming indebted to the West. And so we have this, you know, like you said, you see these as rival blocks and totally competing, but especially at this time, you're actually seeing more economic integration. And that really took the form of uh, economic dependency of East on West in many regards which plays into this diplomatic situation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So they were far more dependent on each other than people like to admit and interrelated, but West Germany never recognized East Germany officially, de jure. De facto, one of the things that changed with France Ostpolitik was uh, that they they effectively did recognize that the East German Republic existed and also importantly, where its borders were. So before the war, before Germany was divided, of course, it was also much, much bigger. And I don't just mean the parts which the Nazis conquered in like their invasion of Central and Eastern Europe. Germany itself was significantly bigger, especially towards the East. There were whole regions in Silesia and Prussia, East and West Prussia that were officially German. And Germans lived there. And actually, the Germans fleeing the Red Army was, if not the largest, then potentially the second largest population transfer in history. A lot of people don't know that. So a lot of the CDU's politics in the early 50s were based around kind of getting back revanchism, getting back the Ostgebiet, the eastern areas of Germany. And it wasn't until Willy Brandt that you know, the Federal Republic of Germany recognized these bits west of the, actually the modern Polish-German border, east of that, that we're not getting back. That's Eastern Europe now, that's Poland now. Um, so that was quite controversial. And then Helmut Kohl as well also recognized that when Germany reunified. And I mean, one of the main phrases for this was uh, Wandel durch Annäherung, which means change through reproachment. So 
It was, that was in a 1963 speech um, by Billy Brandt's kind of foreign policy guy, Egon Barr. Egon Barr. And that signaled a whole kind of change in approach between the East and West. And it was pretty successful. Like, it stopped people being so scared. It normalized relations. And it was good for the economy on both sides to an extent. So that kind of brings me on to what I think is really behind some of this German approach. I mean, Germany is an, an export superpower, right? It's one of the countries that exports the most in the world. Yeah, like, the, the largest trade surplus today, yeah. So it's in Germany's interest to sell a lot of stuff. It makes them money. And the better relationships they have with people, the more money they can make. So Germany doesn't have the same kind of military industrial complex that the United States does. It doesn't quite have the same uh, amount of lobbying, especially not for military deployments, which remain very, very controversial here. You ask a German, do you want to deploy to a real, you know, humanitarian conflict? And they, they would basically say no. Whereas you can ask an American, do you want to deploy to a made up country? And the majority of them will say yes. Yeah, the stats on this, the public polling is is really remarkable. I mean, for example, like Germans view uh, U.S. troops in NATO in Europe as less important to their security than Americans view troops in Europe to American security. So it's just like, and, and that also obviously extends to, like you said, you know, military deployments overseas, which are, are always extremely controversial um, in in Germany. Yeah, and you know, I think you can also say that maybe that's a little bit naive, you know. I don't think uh, there's a lot of kind of foreign policy analysts on German Twitter. I don't think they're actually very, some of them are Atlanticists, and I don't think they're actually very influential in Germany. But it's true that Germans are not used to thinking about security because they're used to kind of living under the Pax Americana. And they think, you know, the Cold War's over. And I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that there is this discussion now. Um, but I think it is a discussion among elites because normal Germans do not want to send weapons to Ukraine, whether defensive, offensive. I don't know if they differentiate in the polling there, but they want to keep out of it. They also don't think that Russia is going to invade. Uh, like a, yeah, a clear majority don't think that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Um, so the rhetoric that's coming from the government, as well as the kind of popular opinion, is very, very different there within Germany. And, you know, I think for historical reasons, that makes sense. A lot of people have been bashing Germany, like you said, calling it a Trojan horse. I guess it depends on whether you think Germany should kind of give up some of its more pacifist traditions and become an enthusiastic member of NATO. It is a member of NATO. It is part of like the Western camp. Uh, but the public debate is like less enthusiastic. What Annalena Baerbock, the foreign minister, said is that in NATO, you don't want 11... I think she said Azmita Shisa. I'm not very good at football, but I think that's the centre forward. So, um, well, like the person that would that would take the that would take the penalty shot, right? You don't want the Elfmita. The Elfmita. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you're you don't want basically uh, right. your best strikers, yeah, yeah. right? You need you need some midfielders and defenders in there. Was sort of exactly, and I think Germany's kind of on defence or midfield here. I, I don't want to go, go with her labelled metaphor yeah. too much, but um, that's what she said. So Germany definitely firmly in NATO, benefits from being in NATO in terms of not having to spend very much on security, 
as Donald Trump pointed out many times, Germany did not does not pay two percent, uh, which is the kind of agreed on amount for a NATO member to pay. But most Germans don't want them to. Pay right. 2%. Yeah. Two two percent of GDP on defense was sort of this like guideline agreed. I think in like twenty fourteen at the this NATO summit um, and Germany basically says, Oh, we're, we're doing pretty well, but basically says we're, we're not going to do that at all. We don't, we don't need to, it doesn't really make sense. And so this is like a long standing debate, whether this makes sense and sort of, it just, it's a bit of a tedious, like back and forth between like think tankers on either side of the Atlantic. So it's, it's already been historically seen as kind of this weak link in NATO and yet kind of has also participated in certain NATO missions. For example, um, kind of moving along the timeline here, I guess, to, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Schroeder, who was in government with the Greens in the early 2000s. They joined the Yugoslav Wars and then more recently the war in Afghanistan as part of a NATO mission there. Could you talk a little bit about this moment in the early 2000s and the NATO intervention there? because it would, had been a pretty big taboo to like deploy the Bundeswehr abroad. And then you have the Greens in government, Joschka Fischer as the foreign minister of the Greens. And all of a sudden this pacifist party, which you associate with, with this, like this pacifist movement in the 1980s, all of a sudden they're enthusiastically supporting a military mission abroad under the auspices of human rights, which I think has continued today of the sort of like uh, we we love peace and human rights so much that we're willing to go to war for it in a way that like dovetails a bit with a U.S. neoconservative perspective, but from the German Greens. And so, could you talk about a little bit about maybe this historical moment, and then the Greens in general, and and sort of their peculiarities as a um, as a foreign policy party? Sure. I mean, I think peculiarities is the right word. It's actually um, a very strange twist of history, in my opinion, that the Greens have become the kind of most hawkish party in Germany, you know, coming from another country, you wouldn't expect that because usually the Greens are like the pro-peace party. And in Germany, they started out as an extension of the peace movement. There was They were kind of a mixture of far leftists, of the anti-nuclear movement, which was also linked to the peace movement. So a lot of the anti-nuclear movement in Germany started because there were all these kind of nuclear missiles based here by the United States. People were worried about being bombed. So it's not just about anti-nuclear energy. The You know, there's been a strong anti-nuclear weapon tradition within the, the Green Party and like the Green Movement, the Peace Movement. So the Green Party came out of that as an anti-party. They were seen as like the outsiders of the West German political establishment. Joschka Fischer was one of the if I remember rightly, was one of the first MPs to be elected. And, you know, he famously wore trainers. I think this was in the early 70s. And uh, this was really controversial for the political culture at the time. And I think what we've seen ever since with the Greens is like, a, I, I, you know, you could call it a Wander durch Annäherung, uh, like they're transforming by getting closer to the centres of power. Y yeah, so Joschka Fischer became the vice-chancellor and foreign minister in Schröder's SPD-led government, which was a red-green coalition. And he made this historical and monumental decision to send German troops to Yugoslavia. And he justified it in a very German way. Some of his colleagues 
accused him of doing it in a very cynical way. He said that this was to prevent another Auschwitz, prevent Auschwitz from happening again. So after he uh, voted for this and said this, he actually had like a balloon full of red liquid meant to symbolize blood thrown at him by one of his colleagues in the Green Party. So it was a very controversial decision. But I think that was the the kind of big start for when the Greens started to become the kind of internationalist, more hawkish party. I don't really think it's actually fair to call them neocons because they don't actually want to intervene anywhere um, except for humanitarian reasons. They don't like believe in regime change. No, I I wouldn't call them neocons. I just know there were a lot of ties and affiliations between between Fisher and people like Rumsfeld in the early 2000s. So not that they totally subscribe to the same ideology, but that this idea that, you know, to defend human rights, sometimes you need to do that by military force is um, something that's that's controversial, especially in Germany. and, And the Greens then start moving to, to embrace that ideology pretty strongly, especially as quite a few people left the party after this decision to intervene. Um, and it's sort mm-hmm. of like a lot of the pacifist wings of it then just sort of expelled themselves from the party largely. So then I think that that sort of purified it, right? This more kind of pro-intervention, pro-Atlanticist mindset. Yeah, I mean, I would say they are, they are definitely Atlanticist and they're definitely... They've made that kind of core of their offering, which for me was a very weird tactical decision politically, um, ahead of the last election in particular, Annalena Baerbock was their chancellor candidate, their first ever chancellor candidate. Annalena Baerbock in particular is like a human rights lawyer. She studied human rights law, but in particular, she seems to really care about NATO, about Germany being a NATO ally. And it seems like Germany being a reliable partner for her is much more important than standing up for traditional peace movement or green even values. So she, for example, decided that Germany would stay part of the nuclear sharing agreement, which means that nuclear weapons, NATO nuclear weapons, the US's nuclear weapons are based on German soil. And at the same time said, you know, we want to um, commit ourselves to disarmament, which, you know, it doesn't really make that much sense. But she had to kind of keep the few members of the green base happy that are still more dovish on foreign policy, because I do think those people are out there, Um, whether they're Green voters or supporters or members. I don't think everyone in the Greens has this kind of more hawkish line on foreign policy. I think that's something that's come through a particular strömung, a particular current of the leadership. And I think the Greens are a very diverse party. They're like a left, left liberal party for the most part. It's just on this particular issue, they seem to think that being pro-NATO is going to win votes. Or maybe it's coming from the heart. You know, maybe it's not a political category, uh, not a political calculus. And they really want Germany to be a better ally to the United States and to take more responsibility internationally, which I think there's an argument for that. Like Germany for a long time has kind of step back and not, you know, paid the dues that the rest of people have paid in the Western alliance, whether it's militarily or, and at the same time has sold a lot of weapons, has sold a lot of of goods to also regimes like China, Saudi Arabia, that are very bad for human rights. The Greens have quite a consistent view on foreign policy in that they want to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, they want to stop, which has actually already been stopped, um, to particular dictatorships and stuff where they want to put a ban on buying stuff which is 
produced with forced labor. So yeah, they, they have kind of particular view that they want to be like the kind of West, pro-Western party, but also pro-human rights. So they do also want to increase controls on where Germany sells weapons to. It seems like the, the trend is to yeah basically be a bit less transactional, which would have been a criticism that I think a lot of people would have made of foreign policy under Merkel, trying to basically, like like you said at the start, um, in terms of the, the incentives behind German foreign policy, basically just stand back, stay calm, have good relations with everybody so they'll buy Make a lot stuff. of money. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that was often often criticized with Merkel for not taking this harder line. And so it's it's interesting because I think the Greens, I mean, you said, you know, maybe this is from the heart. And I think in, in my reading of it, it really is in a lot of ways because it, it's not a huge electoral winner. Like when you look at Germans' views of military policy, of uh, of interventions, you know, of of NATO, of um, for example, one of the tenets of NATO is is Article Five, which says an, ar- an attack against one is an attack against all. You know, Germany is very solidly a NATO member, but the population as a whole is like sixty or seventy percent says like, no, I I don't want German troops to go into you know the Baltics or whatever to to defend Estonia if they're attacked. They're and so I think they're happy to be defended, but uh, they don't want yeah. to send troops abroad exactly. for historical reasons. Exactly, and so it's it's interesting because then the Greens say, you know, no, we're really we're making this very like principled stand and they see themselves as one moving away as this very commercial approach to foreign policy and two saying we're actually willing to use force more to defend these values in a way that does sound a bit incongruous to a more kind of center left ear in say the UK or the US where you think oh no no well if you're on the left like you're going to you're going to oppose this kind of stuff but i think if you talk to Baerbock or something, I think they would honestly say that, like, no, like, I, I am progressive, and that's why we have to support these kind of causes. Yeah, I had a conversation recently with a, a security analyst, and I said, you know, are they kind of liberal interventionists? Because that's the kind of rhetoric we used to get from Tony Blair, um, Bill Clinton, where it was about you would intervene to actually help with human rights. And that's the same, that's some of the rhetoric that we get from the Greens. I think one thing that's worth mentioning is that they don't actually want to intervene anywhere. They want to like spend more money on weapons. They maybe want to deliver defensive weapons to Ukraine, but they really don't. I don't think they want to send German troops abroad to any kind of real like major conflict between nations. I don't think they would be involved in a new Iraq war, for, for example. But but they, they would they would want to go along with the Afghanistan, Afghanistan plans, yes. for example, because, because that, was, like that was under the auspices of NATO. Yeah, yeah, because that was also I mean, in terms of international law, that was where Article five was used. And whereas with Iraq, that was kind of a, a regime change war that Germany was a, wasn't involved in. Merkel was in favor of getting involved there, but Schröder saw that it was a vote winner, a massive vote winner to campaign against the Iraq war. So just to show like how pro-peace the German public are, he was massively behind in the polls. And that was one of the main two things that kind of catapulted him ahead of his rivals to get to use Edmund Stoiber, uh, as well as Stoiber's kind of fluffed response to flooding, which repeated itself last year with Armin Laschet, who was seen like laughing during these quite catastrophic floods in yeah. Western Germany. Um, yeah, we so, read we read Merkel's op-ed in the Washington Post on on our episode about her um, her Schroeder doesn't speak for all Germans written you know 
published yeah. in English in the Washington Post about she she stopped one like one not shy of saying you know we need to go to war in Iraq but basically saying we need to be a good partner to the U.S. and if they're feeling under threat we need to be with them so which is very similar to Baerbock's rhetoric yeah 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 but then it seems like I mean interestingly Merkel seems to have have kind of learned that lesson really I mean maybe maybe in a way similarly to how she was kind of got scared off by her very like libertarian economic program. Um, and almost losing to Schroeder, maybe she was similarly scared off by this foreign policy and then takes this much more centrist approach. She also denied it later on. She denied that she supported a, a war in Iraq. And, uh, you know, DW, Deutsche Welle actually fact-checked her on that. Good work so, on that, yeah. <laughs> uh, and said, you know, that's not true. You wrote this thing. It's, like, pretty hard to understand that as anything other than support for, like, the U.S.-led coalition going into Iraq. But, yeah, going going back to, I guess, this, this Red-Green coalition, because I think, because now, now we have the same set of characters or at least the same parties in similar positions, right? As yeah, in the early two thousands of a, an SPD chancellor and a green foreign minister. Sure. I, and I think you see two of these strains emerging, right? We talked about the greens and this kind of liberal human rights interventionism. And on the SPD side, you have now very notoriously Schroeder, then chancellor, now basically just gas lobbyist for Nord Stream two, this pipeline that's so controversial because it would bypass Ukraine. So the idea is that, if Ukraine was was invaded or, you know, it would, it would sort of give Russia free reign to act in Ukraine and like Germany could still keep getting its gas. And so it wouldn't have to worry about that. And so this is seen as yeah, really. I mean, it, it would also be seen as leverage to prevent Germany from doing anything yeah. because Russia could just say, we'll turn off your gas. And already Germany gets like 56 percent of its gas from Russia. So Germany is reliant on Russia in a lot of ways. I think this is actually the biggest miscalculation of the Greens because they are they are clearly against Nord Stream, but they also are in massively in favor of shutting down nuclear power, yeah. which is going to make Germany's energy much, much more reliant on Russia because gas is like a, a reliable fuel, as is nuclear, whereas renewables, you know, you can't guarantee that they're going to be running yeah, it's a very like it's a, a very contradictory policy, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, the other I think I think it's worth like, I mean, I I agree that there's a lot of like cynicism and and commercial thinking in German foreign policy. At the same time, I do understand, even if that is true, I I pretty much side with this idea that like it's better to try to act diplomatically because the thing that gets excluded in all of this is like you say, oh well, this is you know it's going to be so bad for Ukraine, uh, we need to stand up and we need to defend them. But if you don't put all your energy into diplomacy and trying to defuse the situation, it's Ukrainians more than anybody that's that's going to get hurt from this and killed, you know, in, in huge numbers. And so I think I think sometimes in the U.S. discourse, that's not exactly acknowledged. And it's, it's worth pointing out that the, the sort of impetus to try to solve this diplomatically, regardless of where you want to lay the blame for the tensions, is is definitely the best way to go. And also that the U.S. has its own like specific commercial interests here, right? Of course, the U.S. having a lot of liquefied natural gas, which you'll see a lot, LNG, uh, which would then be be shipped to Germany. And a lot of U.S. companies stand to benefit quite substantially if Russian natural gas is not shipped by a pipeline to Germany. And so there's this... That's interesting. There's this own set of interests on the other side of it that you can't say, oh, well, you know, this sort of American-led hawkish coalition is acting just in the interests of the freedom of the Ukrainian people, there's also a whole other set of incentives going on that we need to take into account, as well as U.S. and other countries selling arms to Ukraine. So 
you know, it, it, it's good to it's good to keep an eye on everybody's incentives in this situation and not really assume that there's good guys or anyone's innocent. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, there's never it, it, I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make um, in particular on the left. that There is a good option. Quite often there are no good options because of bad things that happened in the past, you know. Like we're in the world that we're in now. Uh, there aren't any easy choices. Um, I don't think that means that you need to enthusiastically support one or the other. I, I actually haven't made up my mind on this kind of diplomacy or defensive weapons situation because I think there's a case to be made that actually giving more weapons to Ukraine could potentially deter Russia because right now, let's say they're an under-equipped, under-experienced army. And if they had tons of anti-tank missiles, which they're getting more and more of, then maybe that deters Russia, or maybe that just means that any conflict that there it's going to be will make Russia more bloody, uh, with Russia would be more bloody, right? Yeah, and the other side of that is that no amount of military aid to Ukraine is going to make a difference in a potential war. All it's going to do is undermine your credibility as an arbiter of peace, and then therefore could make this worse. So I agree that there's not any like clear-cut answers here and i think it's i think it's important to like just grapple with that ambiguity in the situation and not not adopt like the sort of uh, residual tanky mindset which you see on the left um but also not you know this pro-intervention hawkishness which I yeah think I, I, and I would say either. i guess one problem with the idea of uh, negotiating is the question of whether it's actually possible to negotiate with putin you know if he's reliable I know that Merkel, she got a lot of flack for trying to negotiate with Putin or at least uh, re remain in contact with him. She was, of course, a fluent Russian speaker. He speaks actually quite good German as well. KGB in Dresden, yeah. <laughs> um, so the question is, you know, can can you rely on Russia there? And of course, it, what is Russia's preconditions for that? Is it locking Ukraine out of NATO? I mean, I think that's the main one that they're asking for. And the US doesn't want to under, or at least NATO doesn't want to undermine itself by admitting to that. But I actually think that in, in practice, there's, there's no way that Ukraine or Georgia, which are, you know, in conflict, frozen conflicts with Russia, are going to join NATO. So it's a lot of disagreement for something that in, in all practicality isn't going to happen. And of course, like you said, there's this question of, oh, shouldn't anyone be allowed to join whatever alliance they want? On the one hand, well, what is NATO? What is it there for? After Afghanistan, I think this is a good time to be asking the question, you know, for, for at least NATO to be doing a little bit of soul searching, if you want to put it diplomatically. And it seems like, you know, nine, less than nine months later, maybe we, we are dragged into another NATO conflict after this huge Afghanistan debacle where trillions of dollars were spent, lives lost and very, very little achieved. I think it's fair to say, if you look at how quickly, like the security infrastructure just completely collapsed afterwards. Institutions want to keep justifying their own need to exist here. So I think there's like, there is a, without, without excusing Russian moves at all, I think there is like a, sort of a self-perpetuating logic that like NATO needs to constantly reinvent new reasons to exist. And you know, yeah. for 20 years, Afghanistan was a good reason for that. And like you said, that just totally failed. It really couldn't have been, couldn't have been more of a waste or more of a disaster. And so now it's sort of like, what's the next thing? Yeah. And also, I mean, this was something the linker, in my opinion, could have profited on in the election because they've always been very critical of NATO, but instead uh, also partly due to Die Linke's, like political miscalculations, misactions, 
But there's some elements of being pro-NATO which are almost religious, I feel. And they're, they're, it's in spite of like all evidence, you have to be really, really pro-NATO. I mean, even Schultz said, Die will never recognize NATO from the heart. Right. So um, just going. This back, was a big like, thing in the in the campaign. Right. When people were floating the idea of maybe there will be the votes for a red, red, green coalition exactly. ended up not working out percentage wise. But they were basically like saying D-Linka, which which pr- proposes, I think their official proposal is to like, like not have it be NATO anymore, but have a kind of overarching European security structure that then Russia would be integrated in. Right. And so like that's sort of that's sort of their proposal. And everyone said like, no, like they were basically kind of saying like, no, get down and say you love NATO. Like we, yeah. we, we can't, you're too dangerous. You can't join. And it's like, what, you're going to give them like the traffic ministry. Like they're not going to influence foreign policy. So it, it exactly. seemed, it no seemed a bit weird that they had, it was like a humiliation. Ministry. Like you have to love NATO. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Uh, you know, you could say it's just a, like a, a hangover from the cold war. I would probably say that. Um, where NATO was kind of the anti-communist bloc. And if you're against NATO, you're a communist and you need to be frozen out from public life. And, you know, I think we have a, a lot of hangovers of that within our public life. I just think that there should be a kind of diversity within the political spectrum on these kind of issues. I, I think that it's quite healthy within a political culture to have, be able to have like respectful disagreements about in particular foreign policy and, you know, NATO membership, for example, nuclear weapons, all of these kind of issues, which I think the security establishment wants us to sweep under the rug and make and make out. it beyond the pale to discuss it even like it can't it can't be a matter of politics right like you said it's a matter of like religious belief mm. that it's a good thing yeah yeah and I, I don't think that's intellectually honest i don't think it does make you politically beyond the pale if you say like you know what i don't want my country to be in nato or i think nato should be dissolved because the cold war is over uh, you know and maybe we can have a better security infrastructure with something else i think the left needs to get a little bit more serious about security in the sense of there are quite a lot of like reflexive kind of anti-Western impulses there uh, in some some cases for good reason. But, you know, with Andrei Honko, from, who's an outspoken member of the left in, in, in the Bundestag, like kind of backing Lukashenko in Belarus. I, I mean, there, there's definitely that reflex there. And I, I think maybe Dilenka needs to get more serious on security, <laughs> but then it's really hard to do that within the pre-existing infrastructure and like intellectual architecture of think tanks because they are all almost certainly like Atlanticists. But I think we need to have more normal Germans who aren't think tankers part of this and people also who aren't like top politicians make or or the peace movement having more of a, a view, you know? It's it shouldn't just be between kind of quite cynical anti sanctions and pro export people and potentially well-meaning um, Atlanticists who want Germany to take more responsibility, but aren't sure what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the actual like perspective of the average German, like they're they're one like to me pretty reasonable. Like mm-hmm. you know, maybe some some would argue like naive and not seeing the need for like stronger defense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, generally opposing intervention, not being a fan of uh, U.S. troops that much, especially nuclear, um, nuclear weapons stationed in the country. And so, like, it seems like there is actually a pretty broad range of opinions and perspectives, and they're they're pretty measured for the most part. And it's at the same left. time, not not being super pro exporting weapons either. Right. And so it's like but I think in Germany, um, probably even more so than, say, the U.S., 
you have this like massive divide between there's like three poles in Germany, right? There's like the actual existing foreign policy makers. There mm -hmm. are the sort of Atlanticist think tank defense bubble. And then there's the actual population as a whole. In the U.S., like the actual policymakers and the think tankers, it's, you know, they the revolving doors. They're mm -hmm. not, they're pretty aligned. So there's basically just two in the U.S. and then the people. But, and I would say, you know, the defense establishment in the U.S. is like, a few degrees more hawkish than the population as a whole. But there is always a reasonable amount of political appetite in the U.S. to go to war for things, yeah. which, you know, to me is unfortunate. In Germany, the like the distance between these three things is so massive. Like you said, you have the very kind of cynical, like pro-exporting, more, I guess, traditionally in government thinking. You have the like 100% NATO. We need to totally be at the U.S.'s side. We need to like take a very hawkish stance on all these positions. And then you have the population, which I said to me has pretty decent opinions of like, well, let's not start any wars. Let's not sell everybody weapons. Let's kind of let's kind of take it easy. And like you said, you know, trying to get either one of these elite circles, whether that's the think tankers or the government people to actually represent the population more would be such a massive step in a positive direction. And, and it's it's unfortunate that there seems to be very little willingness to democratize foreign policy in this country. Absolutely. I think it's the area by far the furthest from democratic control. I mean, in Germany, you can almost understand why it's outside of political control, because West Germany was, due to the Westbindung, strongly in the Western camp. The refunding, the rebuilding of Germany, Western Germany after the war was in large part funded by the Marshall Plan, which was pro-America. You know, so I think it, it makes sense in a way in Germany because it was on the fault lines of this intercontinental and, you know, inter-system conflict. But I would appreciate, yeah, maybe if more ordinary Germans got to discuss these things. I mean, we don't talk, say this very much on this podcast, uh, given our kind of premise, but uh, I actually think Germans, the German people are fairly sensible on this one and even, even German political culture at large. And so like, it is kind of nice to see that. And, and one of, one of the reasons, you know, I wanted to do this episode is to actually, you know, kind of explain what's going on and just, you know, normally we counter like the, the Western fawning the Anglo fawning over Germany. And this one, we're actually kind of countering some of the Western criticism of Germany, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is that Germany is like this, you know, like I said, you know, we said at the start, the Trojan horse or the chink in the armor or somehow like betraying the West and is, you know, the mm -hmm. weak link or, or whatever, these analogies they keep using. And it's like, I don't, I don't really know what that means. And I think for, for everything we laid out here, uh, it's not like their policy is totally incoherent or totally off base. I mean, yeah, I think I, I, I would personally hope for, yeah, okay, let's let's try to main, you know, hope that Germany can kind of maintain this more diplomatic approach and this more sort of more reserved approach to foreign policy. You know, ideally, uh, I would have Germany move away for a bit from its uh, export dependence for both political and economic reasons and sort of stop seeing the world in such sort of very, uh, like I said, commercial terms where just mm -hmm. everything is a chance to export. And I think, you know, if you kind of tamp down on that economic logic, but maintain this fairly balanced logic as far as military interventions, I think... Germany actually could be a model for a, a more peaceful and effective foreign policy in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly hope so. I'm in favor of it as a tradition. I think it's good for the, the political culture, despite this kind of heated debate at the moment, which is basically about 
are other people allowed to send our weapons or uh, do we send a few Kevlar jackets? You know, it seems like a, a lot of column inches are getting printed over some, some pretty small de decisions. I think it's fair to criticize um, some people within the, let's say, the, the classic Volkspartei and the SPD and the Christian Union for being like cozying up to dictators in a way, in particular Viktor Orban, but also Putin. You know, you could say that that's the Nord Stream 2, it's giving leverage to Putin, it's bypassing Ukraine, you know. So if you want a humanitarian foreign policy, maybe it's good to criticize how, where you're doing business. Coming back to this issue of export dependency and, you know, the Greens, of course, have done that and they want to stop forced labor from China. But do they want to do that from forced labor from the U.S. prison system? You know, I think having a humanitarian foreign policy is, is a great idea, but I think it should be applied by humanitarian interests rather than what power block you want to feel loyal and a good partner to. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good place to end it. I mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to leave this sounding like a liberal and saying that we both agree that we need more open debate and dialogue and discussion on this. But uh, <laughs> I think that is basically all we can hope for. Is but that, I'm uh, happy yeah. to be on the the the, the pro-German episode of Schwarzkrems. So. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the, it's a real, it's a real anomaly here. So we are, we are for once defending the Germans from the, the ravenous warmongering Anglophone press uh, <laughs> rather than, rather than saying, you know, we're always, we're always making fun of the Anglophone press basically, but normally we're saying, oh no, we don't live in paradise. And this mm -hmm. time we're saying, actually, maybe you should listen to the Germans for once. Yeah. So yeah, it's a thing that they always say they want to do. They always say we need to be like the Germans. We need but to not, be like the but Germans. On this issue, which yeah, is but except pocket. for this, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, well, James, that was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to James for joining us for our first installment. This is going to be that we're just getting going here. Yeah, on yeah, the, we're, just, we're just heating up, revving up the old, the old Spassbremse engine. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so if you enjoyed this interview, please check out our bonus episode on our premium feed and also look forward to the second installment, which will be out in like two weeks. Yeah, about two weeks till installment number two on the main feed. And then, yeah, sooner than that, you'll have a little extended content about this subject in case you're learning more. And yeah, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. That was your semi-weekly episode of Spaßbremse. Thank you so much for listening. And just a reminder to please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening and give us a review or share with your friends too if you feel like it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Spaßbremse underscore pod where you can tweet us all your comments and complaints. That's at S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore P-O-D. And we're also now on Patreon, so if you are able, your support over there would be greatly appreciated too. You can find us there at www.patreon.com slash If you weren't paying attention, that's totally okay. All this info is also in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time. Tschüss.